whenever you're ready. Okay. <laughs> I almost got I had to, to, I had to scroll to the top. So that, yeah. What's Welcome taking to you so long? Three seventy. Ha You were really late. Welcome to episode 370 of The Fascinating Podcast, a show about the fascinating people and events at the heart of our cultural conversations. I'm Matt Michelotis. I'm J.R. Forsteros. And I'm Kathy Kong. And on this week's show, we're talking about surrogacy and how feminists and conservative Christians, odd bedfellows in their opposition to surrogacy, might reconsider their opinions. But first... Okay, so last week I asked you about some Christmas favorites. So I thought it was only mm-hmm. fair we you some Christmas least favorites. So I'm curious if there is a Christmas movie that you avoid at all costs. Um, Christmas movie that I avoid? Yeah. Hmm. I'm, I might need to hear everybody else's. I can't think of one off the top of my head that I hate. I'm not counting in here like the the various generic holiday movies that they churn out every year that are all yeah. the same, right? Oh, like Love you're, Actually. You're talking about one that okay. creates I don't, actual. I, yeah, I don't like Love Actually. So, you know, when I was younger, I don't even remember when that movie came out. But I remember like, oh, it's so nice. Every, you know, crying is always really cathartic for me. And then I saw it again and I was like, oh, my God, this is an awful movie. <laughs> and <laughs> I know some love, people actually. love it. Yeah, right. It's just kind of icky. It made me feel super, super icky. So, yeah, that one. Not a fan. Uh, Kathy, actually. that is Amanda's favorite Christmas movie. And so we watch oh, it every year. I know. She knows. She knows. Like she knows. Sorry, it's Amanda. It's, yeah, I love it's you. She is but driven. I don't love that movie. People who know her know that she's driven primarily by nostalgia, and so it's fine with mm-hmm. her that it's bad and problematic. Um, yeah. Because when she watches it, it takes her back to you know 2003. Oh yeah. The first time. So yes. She knows. Yes. You don't have to apologize. Okay. I uh, I've never watched Polar Express. Uh, oh, that's a weird one too. Yeah, <laughs> specifically because of the Uncanny Valley animation. I just, I just don't want it. Um, it doesn't. Before you at me, Matt Michelotis, it doesn't have anything to do with Tom Hanks being in it. Hey, uh, <laughs> <laughs> took away my ammo. <laughs> yeah, I'm like Eminem rap battling in that way. Um, I just, yeah, every time I see a clip or a still, it just skeeves me out. And so I just don't want to sit through an hour and a half of that, even though I'm sure it's a lovely yeah. movie. And I don't know if it's a lovely movie. It's weird. Okay. Well, it's weird. Thank you, Kathy. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, you got one? M- mine, you know, uh, it's just not, it's not Christmassy enough. It's about this divorce guy that his wife is trapped in a building with a bunch of terrorists. Okay. And he's like trying to save them. Mm-hmm. And he's a cop. Mm-hmm. Are you What's thinking of called? Skyscraper by with Dwayne Johnson? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> I um I honestly can't think there's some that I don't care for that I'm like, eh, you know, I'm 
probably not going to watch that unless it happens to be on. Like what? Oh, you know. Um, we don't know. Tell Home us. Alone 3. It's like Home Alone is great. I watch it every year. Home Alone 2, I've seen clips of. Home Alone 3, I'm like, oh. Do you know what's crazy Why's- about Home Alone 2? Donald Trump's in it. I was going to say, so far as I know, it's the only Christmas movie where one member of the cast has been impeached twice. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, get this. I was watching Spin City the other day, which, you know, we're slowly working our way through that. And somebody's supposed to be ghostwriting for the mayor. And the mayor can't, he, he like can't get the stories out or something. And they're like, we brought someone in to talk about his book. And Donald Trump walks in and he goes, I don't even use, I don't even use a ghostwriter, which is clearly untrue yeah like his ghost writer has already come out and said how much he hates him but i was like cracking up the whole time he's like talking about his i wrote this book and this book and i never use a ghost writer never touched them i was like oh there's never. a writer at home right now who's furious but yeah i don't know jack frost remember that movie with the michael horror keaton one no, no, no. There's jack frost the horror one and then there's jack frost the comedy from the 1990s with uh about- a uh, father Keaton, dies right? in a car accident. It sounds like a horror film. And oh, then yes, returns yes, yes, as yes, a snowman. Yes. Yeah, who has his last chance to like connect with his father. It's very weird. Ooh, connect that might need son. to go on JR's or with his son, yeah, yeah. That might need to go on JR's bad movie list. Yeah. For his birthday. Well, uh, what about Christmas Although, traditions? Is there a Christmas tradition ugh. that okay, Matt, go ahead. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. I I hate I mean, I'll sit through them, but I hate white elephant gift exchanges, especially when they're like, bring something crappy and everybody like (laughs) opens gifts and you're fighting to get like the one thing that's like, okay. And everyone's trying to, you're you're, like stealing each other's gifts and all that. I'm like, it's about giving garbage to people, stealing from people and leaving unhappy. It's like the opposite of Christmas. It's the worst <laughs> holiday tradition. Okay, so I learned when we moved to Texas that there are different variations of white. Yes. Yeah, yes! yeah, of course. There yes! there are fun variations and good ones, but the the general like you can only spend $15 and get something that's trash. Oh, you see, know, so know. we we nuance it a little bit. We it's yeah, the 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 low dollar limit is enforced, but then you got to get the weirdest thing you can find. See, is that good even? I like, think that's funny. Well, it's like a funny when game. When people do it, one. but why is it a Christmas? Yeah, thing? if if there's an if everyone's got buy into it, I think it can work. We we did this as a staff team once upon a time when every I was missionary with staff them. team yeah. does this. But we did it with because like you don't, don't buy anything. You yeah. literally find something in your house. Right. And what was so funny about it was the gift. There was one gift where like at every meeting we would try to sneak it into somebody else's backpack or their desk. Mm -hmm. And so it just became a thing. And I actually don't remember where that um, faucet went. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it was I mean, a faucet. faucet. Exactly. There it's are, like the head of a rabbit costume. Yeah. The, yeah. There are sometimes yeah. sometimes you get a thing that is so spectacularly weird and bad that just throwing it away doesn't honor the true weirdness. Yes. Right. Yep. You're like this tea yep. kettle shaped like a cow must be passed from house to house. Yes. 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 Yeah, I yes. don't yeah. want it, but the joy that I take in 
pulling it out and going, look, someone gave me this. It's so See, fun. Right. And I why does they have it in the like, first place? Mary is pregnant and she it doesn't have a father. And then you go to the uh, stable and there in, in the manger is a uh, giraffe she gave birth to. That's what white elephants are. No, it, it makes no sense. Not following. It, it, it's because you're supposed to get this beautiful thing, this surprise, this wonderful celebration, and instead you're like, well, that's weird. No, you went to a white <laughs> elephant gift exchange. You know what you're getting. Right. It's on purpose. No, it's weird. You know what I do? And this maybe this is mean. I get a, I get a <clears throat> nice gift and put it in there. Yeah, and then of course everyone you starts do. trying to get it. Yeah, they fight over it. You ruin it. And then whoever got just like, they're like, oh, I got plastic forks. And this person's over here is like, I got movie passes. <laughs> uh, you ruin the you spirit ruin of life. Merry Christmas. Wow. Uh, how about you guys? Something you hate about Christmas, the happiest time of year? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just, is there a specific tradition that you, that is your least favorite? Was the question, Matt Nicholas. That's mine. <laughs> It's hard to tell. You mask it so well. Oh, boy. Can it be a tradition that you have never... Yeah, sure. ...honored? So, yeah. I don't really understand Elf on a Shelf. Yeah. Oh, man. And, I do. Um, and, and then the hand-wringing around, oh, I need to do my kids Elf on the Shelf as part of creating magic around the season. <laughs> I, right. I, it's a little creepy. It is. Well, the, and, and, oh, really? and I think the, the other layer to it is when now we may have some listeners who like are really angry about this, but I find it really fascinating when it's um, families that are also Christians and this whole, like, I'm creating magic for my child around Christmas. Oh, so I'm stressing, yeah. I'm creating these ridiculous scenarios of this elf. So essentially, not only are you lying to them, which, you know, that's a whole nother level. But like, I just, I don't get it. I really don't understand it. And and then the like it energy. It. I'll tell uh, Peter. Right. The, You're like gonna get the, up every morning. There's me and Elf. It's somewhere. so crazy to me. I, I just don't understand it. So Matt, that's, Matt, you're that's aware. You're aware why you move the elf every night, right? Because it's alive and yeah. it is doing something mm-hmm. funny every day. It's like no. oh, now it's decorating mm-hmm. the tree. Every night it goes back to the North Pole and snitches on you. What? And then it comes back, mm-hmm. and so you have to find where it's hiding. Wait, today. is that why it has stitches? Oh <laughs> no! But for real, like that's I, in in the. I didn't in know the, that. Like, in the official, I thought it was just like, oh, this elf lives in our house and it's kind of creepy no, and it's alive and it moves around. He and is does helping junk. Santa by reporting on your behavior, child. Oh so, come on, dude! Uh, what I love weird. about Elf on a Shelf is when people put pictures that rhyme and they're like, <laughs> "You've heard of Elf on a Shelf? Here's a picture of the first mate from Star Trek sitting on a rooster," yep. and you're like, "Oh, okay." <sighs> I find those well. One of our one of our guests, Phil Yu, for years has had Bruce in the spruce. Yep, Bruce Lee. (laughs) Yep, or Lee in the tree. Yep, and and there he stays. I have Bruce, my rabbit. Bruce was in our spruce, and he bit through our perfect Christmas lights yesterday. Thanks, Bruce. Perfect. Oh, for nothing. 
<laughs> uh, what about you, Jay? Are you got one? Actually, also is Elf on the Shelf. I, I. Oh, you both don't like Elf. On I the shelf. really think it's a toxic tradition in so many ways. Um, I don't know any parents that actually enjoy it more than like the first three days. Right. Oh, is that and right? So why do you do it? Why do you do it? Ah, I just assumed it and was delightful whole, magic. Like, I had no idea it was behavior modification and shaming. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. uh, well, I'm just very against. It's weird. Yeah. I'm also episode, very against like Santa's watching you. So be good. So you get presents. Like I think, yeah. all of that, you know, I would rather scare them by saying the Holy spirit is here. Watching the Holy Ghost and convicting you. <laughs> Ghost near your All toast. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, my dad got straight up coal in his stocking one year, and I, I'll tell you, the whole family was shook. Well, we'll, have, we'll talk about that in another episode. Yeah, you just Maybe do. We'll it get him on here to talk about it. Uh, before we introduce our guest, we have a pretty big announcement over here at the Fascinating Podcast. Uh, and I think it's actually going to be helpful for some of you who are still doing your holiday shopping. Uh, <laughs> there's a little book that came out this year called Loving Disagreement by our very own Kathy Kong and Matt Michelotis. And it received the quite prestigious Inglewood Review of Books Book of the Year. Yeah. It's amazing. We're really surprised. We did not know that was coming. So did yeah. you get an email or did they just announce it on their socials and it was like, bam. Um, our editor sent us a note and was like, I need to speak to you today. Can we get just even five minutes? And we we're like trying yes. to figure it out if we could find I five was like, minutes. Are we in time? Like, are we in trouble? That's what, yeah, I would be so <laughs> right. freaked out. Uh-oh. And then she was like, finally, she was like, oh no, I just saw it. It's out there on the internet. I'll tell you, uh, you guys won this award. And we're like, oh, that's amazing. And like, Two minutes later, we got an email from someone else in the industry that was like, congratulations, you guys. So our editor, Caitlin Carlson, just managed to tell us just in time. Nice. Yeah. So apparently, Englewood I mean, did write our publisher. So Dave Zimmerman got an email um, from Englewood telling him that that had happened. So, so Kathy, uh, how, how does this feel? <laughs> um, it is... Quite surprising. Um, I will say the the order of the text, I was just about to start teaching a class. And so I was like, oh, no, is there something wrong? Like, that was my first reaction. And then I finished teaching class, and there's, like, 25 texts. So I'm trying to, like, like I don't know whether, wrong. right? Like, something's wrong. I'm trying to, like, do I look at the text? Do I go to email? Like, what's going on? And so I, I fast scrolled and was like, oh, thank God we're not in trouble. And then I don't think it sunk in until much later um, that this was like, oh, oh. Uh, and I'll be honest, Matt and I have talked a lot about like being in conflict um, in a situation. And I think that conflict is still kind of hanging over my head because it hasn't mm-hmm. come to any any resolution at all. Yeah. And so I think because of that, it, it feels a little bittersweet just mm. knowing that, um, that there's this thing out there that has really pushed both of us to live out the words that we wrote. And, um, and so it, it feels like, Oh, wow. This is an important book. 
and I have to actually live it out. <laughs> so it feels wonderful. I'm hoping for resolution. It may never come. So in the meantime, I'm just going to soak it all in because I have, you know, this, I, it's a big deal. So I'm very excited. So listeners, if you haven't shopped, you haven't finished buying all of your, you know, book lovers out there a book, order our book. Order our book. <laughs> Look, I understand that we are super biased, and if we say this yes. book is great, you might be suspicious. I get it. You're wrong, but I get it. Inglewood uh, <laughs> review of books, though. No shabby publication. So, Matt, yeah. how, how have you felt since this announcement? Uh, you know, similarly to Kathy, I, I like went and looked at who had won the award, what books had won in the awards in the past, and I felt really humbled, actually. Um, it's a big deal and really amazing, beautiful books have been their choices every year. Um, I really respect Englewood review of books because they, so the dirty secret about the Christian publishing industry, some of those awards are not very carefully given out. Sometimes they're given to people's friends or, uh, there are politics involved or money involved. A lot of the awards you have to pay money to be considered, things like that. Inglewood Review has a strong reputation as an organization that chooses books that they care about, that they have read, that match their mission. So the fact, it, it felt like an award of merit, actually, from people I respect. And that was, I think, even more humbling. It's not just like something to put on the cover of another edition of the book. It's something that's like really meaningful to me. Um, so I'm really thankful and humbled and... Uh, and I will say, too, this is my 15th book um, and the first one that's ever won an award, which uh, I told Kathy is 99% likely because Kathy is the co-author. So that's pretty nice. So I'm thankful to Kathy, too. Same, Matt. <laughs> well, yeah, she's thankful for that 1% I contributed to get us that award. <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, congrats to both of you. It's an extremely well-deserved award. I'm sure that none of our listeners are surprised you won it, as I am not. Uh, and yeah, we're going to talk more about it next week for our wrap-up, best of the year. But for now, we need to introduce our guest. Uh, Grace Y. Gao is professor of ethics and a founding co-director of the Center for Sexuality, Gender, and Religion at the Claremont School of Theology. And she is the author of My Body, Their Baby, A Progressive Christian Vision for Surrogacy. This is a really great conversation. Yet another one that we just sort of had to stop once we ran out of time. <laughs> we could have kept going for about three more hours. Grace is an incredible guest. And we know that you're going to enjoy our conversation with her as much as we did. So without any further ado, let's welcome Grace to the show. Well, welcome to the fascinating podcast, Grace Gao, who is the author of My Body, Their Baby, A Progressive Christian Vision for Surrogacy. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we like to ask our guests, what is fascinating you these days? 
Okay, so we are recording in the middle of December, which means it's ballet season. Um, My older son (laughs) is doing 12 out of 15 shows of Nutcracker. So I am knee deep in Nutcracker. And beyond, (laughs) you know, my own involvement, I'm just kind of impressed by the fact that it has become this invented tradition. I mean, people go to Nutcracker yearly you know, if they're not going to church or if they're not doing other rituals like sitting on Santa's lap or whatever, um, I, I'm i fascinated by the fact that that ballet has single-handedly kept dance studios afloat and ballet companies afloat. It is the biggest moneymaker, you know, little girls and little boys, you know, they, 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 they're one role and they dream the next year that they can be mm-hmm. the next role and the next role and the next role. And were it not for the Nutcracker, I, I, I don't know about the health of these ballet companies, right? Or these dance studios. So uh, yeah. that's, that's kind of, you know, what I've been thinking about recently. That's amazing. My my middle daughter was a professional dancer briefly and did ballet from when she was tiny, tiny. But yeah, a lot of these yes. companies, they travel at Christmas, right? Exactly. Like they go all over the place and are doing shows in other states, other places, other countries sometimes. Yes. Uh, it's amazing. If people um, have discretionary money to see one or two ballets, it's Nutcracker, or Swan Lake, and that's it, mm-hmm. right? That is what the American audience knows, right? And so absolutely, these professional companies, 20 shows, 30 shows, 40 mm-hmm. shows, 50 shows, mm-hmm. because that's what brings in the money, for sure. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. My daughter also danced, so that's why I thought, oh, that's right, three out of four of us have had <laughs> intimate experience with this world. And I remember getting, we took a look at the audition packet and yes. then there was like the parent packet yeah. right. for it's the studio. And I was like, right. what? I'm not auditioning. <laughs> I don't want to do anything. And it was this whole thing. So yes, yes it is fascinating, isn't it? So um, we Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Matt. I was going to say one more ballet thing. My my daughter was in this ballet called Giselle. Yes. And I was like, oh, that sounds sweet. And you go to it. It is not sweet at all. It's super tragic. So, so my son has the male variation for that for oh, a, a really? competition oh, last boy. year. There's Amazing. death and there's, you know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, people dancing to death. And, yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. It's dark. Well, even, even the Nutcracker can be a little scary. I oh, remember man. seeing it as a child and I was like, what? I, it, yeah. it scared me. It the scared rat king me. scared me. And as a kid. The ra- right. Yeah. Ugh. Well, the and, then, and then, the soldiers and ugh. there's chaos happening. And, and the uncle's fire. creepy. Yeah, exactly. That guy, he's coming in doing magic and he's like, You're going to go to sleep and have some adventures. I'm like, No, you're not coming no. to my house, uncle. No, no, bad uncle, bad uncle. Yeah. Swan Lake, too. That's. You can invite me back and we'll talk more about yeah, well, right? it. <laughs> so Grace, your book, uh, not just an area of study, it's personal. Uh, yes. And I'd love if you could, bre- I mean, again, I know you share a lot of your story in the book, but for those sure. who have not gotten the book yet, 
Uh, what was your journey to deciding to be a surrogate? Uh, I mean, how how much personal wrestling with the ethics of surrogacy did you go through before you decided, you know, we're doing this? So it actually was not a difficult uh, question for me, meaning when the opportunity presented itself and when I found that I actually had two friends, um, let's just say in need, Hmm. Um, it is just for, and I explain why in the book, but basically, uh, for whatever reason, I do pregnancy really well. It's not difficult for me. Hmm. And also, I think I have a default where if I can help someone, I will. Um, and so for me personally, there wasn't a lot of wrestling with the ethics of surrogacy. I know other people have concerns. And some of those concerns are structural and they have to do with the industry and they have to do with compensating or paying surrogates. But because I did this for a friend, um, she and her husband had been struggling with infertility for a decade, literally a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it honestly, it, it truly was a no brainer. And I explained in the book um, why it was so easy for me to say yes. Mm-hmm. What, Grace, what so, did you find? Now, I was trying to think of my friends, and if I knew for sure anyone had been a surrogate, and no, no mm-hmm. one comes to mind, um, what was the response of people around you? Or did that matter to you? Were there people that were supportive and some who weren't? Like, what was that experience like? Yes. In fact, it was the the reactions of people around me that that ultimately led to my thinking writing a book about this would be a good idea. Meaning mm. in, in saying yes to my friends, it's not like I thought I was going to get a book deal out of it. Right? <laughs> I, I am an ethicist, but, but, but I'm I not mean. a specialist in bioethics. Right. right. But it was, um, it was the fact that people, I, I was often the only surrogate people had ever met. Mm-hmm. Although, Plenty of people had been touched by infertility, right? So then people right. would say, oh, yes, my person struggled or we struggled or, you know, something like that. Um, usually, I think the vast majority of people, at least to my face, were very complimentary. Like I became like almost in an excessive way, St. Grace, right? I was lauded oh. at the, as this very, very altruistic person. Um, but at the same time, most people had concerns. The number one question I was asked, and I'm still asked today, was some version of, you know, weren't you scared? Aren't you scared that you're going to grow attached to this baby and not want to give it up at the end? Right. So people almost always asked about that. And sometimes people asked about parentage or, you know, how our arrangement came to be, people who knew me. Um, even better asked about, you know, what does the husband think about this? Like, is he down with this? You know, what about your children? At this point, they were six and eight. So they mm. had those types of questions. I also um, say in the book that my parents, these um, immigrants from Taiwan, uh, they were not pleased. My dad's a retired surgeon. And so his angle was no one should ever take unnecessary medical risks. And the fact that this was a gestational surrogacy, meaning I had to go through IVF, and IVF is already a high-risk pregnancy, that was like, you should never do this. I mean, when I 
I had gum graft surgery about three years ago, and he was super freaked out about that, right? I'm like the one kid who, when I had my wisdom teeth pulled out, I was not allowed to have laughing gas because, again, you do not take unnecessary risks. What? Just nothing. No, yeah. I know. I was robbed. I was robbed. I had my local anesthesia. I could not (gasps) do laughing gas, right? So he had that medical, like, you do not take unnecessary medical risks. Amazing. My mom had more of a sense of like, it's weird and this is not how God wants kids to be brought into the world. So yeah, you know, a few detractors. Interesting. Um, but for the most part, people were uh, complimentary. They were curious. They wanted to know about my experience. And, and then some people were concerned about some sort of emotional attachment that I might have formed. Yeah, I I laughed out loud when I was reading the beginning of chapter two, where you write about a male colleague asking <laughs> you about the wisdom and safety of your decision. And I just was right. like, oh, that's that's so funny, ironic, and often the experience for those of us uh, with a uterus and those who do not making comments and concerns about what's going on in our bodies. So, um, you know, you mentioned that there were a lot of questions, genuine um, curiosity about surrogacy, but in your book, you highlight a few of the questions yes. around surrogacy and you start with the psychological harm. And I'd really like our listeners to hear a little bit about that, about like harm to whom and what kind of harm when you're talking about psychological harm. Yeah. So those are great questions. So the first and foremost, just like in my personal anecdotal experience, people are most concerned about the surrogate herself or themselves. Hmm. They are concerned in two ways. They're concerned about the health aspects of it. Um, now, when I was pregnant, this, this male, you know, I, I, I was his contemporary. I was 40 going through IVF, right? Again, because it's not my eggs, it, it, it's okay, right? But I yeah. think the, the vision of a 40-year-old woman right, going through IVF and enduring her pregnancies, you know, that, that is a so-called geriatric, air quotes, geriatric pregnancy, Correct. your advanced yeah. maternal age after 35. Right. So, yes, there are concerns about health, but mostly those health concerns are the same as IVF. And, you know, IVF is its own category. The deeper concerns psychologically are for the woman. And there are a number of reasons for that. I would say when surrogacy first, modern surrogacy, I mean, surrogacy dates to biblical times, but modern surrogacy in a, in a clinical context with doctors involved, right, um, really only dates post-IVF in the modern period. But when it happened, the public came to consciousness about it through total disaster cases. So that's baby cotton in the UK case. And that is uh, Mary uh, Elizabeth Whitehead, right? In uh, baby M, right? Um, in the U- in the US case, where in both cases, the surrogate mother grieved the experience. In the UK case, it's because she never got to meet the couple or the baby 
that she she gave birth to. She she had an agreement that there would there would be a severing of uh, contact. Mm. In the U.S. case, it's because she ultimately didn't want to give the baby away. This was her genetic offspring. It was it was a so-called traditional surrogacy model, not a gestational one. So the public came to consciousness about surrogacy at a time where you had these well-publicized disasters. And not only that, popular culture tends to reify this idea of surrogacy, remorse, and regret. So people have a lot of concerns about how is the mom going to feel, right? They they imagine, you know, you're going to carry this baby lovingly for nine months. How could you possibly give it up? So people have images, just like they have images of a birth mother who who places her child for adoption. They have this image that it was, you know, with great pain and great turmoil. What I talk about in the book is that those images don't uh, fit four decades of study in <laughs> surrogacy research, right? That surrogate mothers, that if there's regret or remorse, it is the statistical exception hmm. and not at all the norm for various reasons. One being their psychological counseling. The other is because all of us surro moms, we know from the beginning that this is not our child. We already feel like our family is complete. So I have two kids of my own. I never wanted a third child. I very, very much wanted to help my friends have their first child, right? So so in terms of the psychological harm, the first is to the woman. The second is people have concerns about the children, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because this is a so-called irregular conception. But those concerns mirror the concerns that people first have had of IVF-conceived children. Now, mm-hmm. I am old enough to remember once upon a time in the 1980s, you know, the, the first IVF-conceived babies, 1978. I actually remember headlines in the 1980s about test tube babies. I mean, uh-huh. there's like literally not a test right. tube, but it's like, yes. you know, it's a petri yes. dish, right? And, you know, aren't people going to feel weird about the fact that they were conceived in a lab and not conceived in a womb, right? And so there are still images and concerns about how are children going to fare. And in the book, I talk about some psychological studies done on surrogate born children that show that um, that it, it's appropriate to ask these questions about psychological well-being, but the harm and damage that is feared is not—it's not showing up right in the data. Grace, can I can I ask you? Mentioned a couple times about surrogates choosing to keep the child potentially, or the fear of that. Mm-hmm. Um, in the gestational version, there's no there's no biological connection other than the child is in your womb. Is that correct? That is correct. It is not my egg. That's right. So could you like legally is the idea if you give birth though, you can choose to keep the child? Like do the parents have to adopt the child? Yeah. So Matt, you open the the legal question opens up a huge can of worms because there is not one federal law in the US governing surrogacy, nor is there a global standard. So, for instance, in some states in the U.S., the birth mother is the legal mother, whether or not regardless she's genetically, of genetic. regardless, Amazing. that's right. Interesting. In the U.K., 
whether we're talking about a gestational arrangement or a traditional one, the birth mother is the legal mother and remains so for at least six months until a court determines it is in the best interest wow. of the child for legal parentage to transfer. Now, wow. I was a surrogate in the state of California. California is considered the surrogacy capital of the whole world. We've got ample fertility clinics. You've got Hollywood celebrities, you know, doing all sorts of, you know, IVF and other treatments. We have gay-friendly climate, you know, all sorts of reasons. Mm -hmm. Now, the state of California, um, they also had a a precedent-setting case, which even introduced the idea of intention, right? So I'm using the language Mm. of I'm the surrogate mother, but there is an intended mother or intended father or intended parent. And there was a case that basically established that um, in cases of dispute, right, that the the intended mother, um, the intended parent gets to be the one to have, uh, to have the child. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm not speaking in a, technical term, but just right, right, paraphrasing. Right, right, right. Yeah, this Johnson v. Calvert oh, really uh, piece of law. Yeah, so you can imagine psychologically, Yeah. if you're an impairment parent, and you, you know, chance surrogacy is never people's first choice, although it right. is for some gay male couples. But for, sure. for straight couples, it is never their first choice. They've already, quote unquote, failed, you know, on this long road of, right. of infertility. Sure. And so their deepest fear is that even after this process, we will not have a child. And they mm. cannot imagine that a person would like gladly give back the child at the end. So that is their deepest fear, right? And so it is in their interest, if they can, to be, to have a surrogate born child in a state or a country that grants them parentage rights. So in the state of California, my intended parents and I, we did all sorts of paperwork that became active on the day of the child's birth. So on that child's birth certificate, my name is not there. It's their names. And because we did the paperwork in advance, that's called a pre-birth parentage order, but not all states allow for it. Wow. Fascinating. Wow. That I have never thought about any of these things. Yeah. <laughs> so interesting. Right, right. Well, and that, I guess that does make some sense because DNA technology is relatively young, right? So, and, and a lot of these laws are going back to before the idea of, you know, what what was the easiest way to determine whose baby it was? Well, it was like, well, who, you know. Who gave birth. <laughs> yeah. Who? That is exactly it, JR. That's right. So, there's this Latin phrase that translates to motherhood is always certain. Right. And by, <laughs> by gestation, you demonstrate motherhood. That's what the translation is. But in the advent of egg donation and surrogacy, right. motherhood is not always certain. Right. It right. is just an open, grace, as much of an open question as uh, uh, paternity. Yes. It sorry. Seems like you're saying that as scientific knowledge and ability advances, ethics change? Um, ethics doesn't necessarily change, but we ask new ethical questions, Mm. right? So, for instance, um, some people are very concerned that we are basically aborting out Down syndrome, 
right? Right. Because you can detect it through prenatal, exactly. And so for some people, now it's a question, okay, I have this diagnosis, what should I do? All the statistics say when faced with the diagnosis, the vast majority of people choose abortion. Mm -hmm. And this becomes an ethical concern in a society that increasingly doesn't have Down syndrome persons, will there be a social support? So the science has changed, raising ethical questions that we didn't ask, you know, X number of years ago, Mm -hmm. right? So it could be that the ethical commitments are the same, but the questions become different with um, technological advances. Exactly, exactly. It's so fascinating to me as somebody who gave birth three times, right? So for listeners, Mm -hmm. if you do not have a uterus, you are not accustomed to being asked, right? How many pregnancies (laughs) and how many live births? Right. That's right. that's something and, like the doctor asks you, you're saying, Kathy? Yes. Right, right. Yeah. So it's it's in our medical records because, um, you know, not all uh, pregnancies end in a live birth. Mm-hmm. And there right. can be complications in pregnancy. And so for one of my pregnancies, I actually had to have an abortion, a DNC, because of the mm-hmm. way it presented. And then another pregnancy ended in my bathroom. And Mm. that didn't need to require any medical intervention, but that goes in my medical record as far as I trust my um, uh, doctors to have that information. Um, So I find it fascinating because part of the broader discussion around childbirth, psychological harm, and what, uh, what those of us who can have children or pregnant or get pregnant is this question around our our emotional ties to the pregnancy and um the child and all of the ethics around abortion and adoption and having now read your book around surrogacy which honestly i had not really thought that much about to me, is just fascinating in a time where there is such a push to criminalize abortion, right? To criminalize um, actions around maternal health, and yet the concern is around, you know, in surrogacy, will the birthing woman get emotionally attached? There's right. something, so, right? Yes, right. So there's, um, so Kathy, you raise all sorts of questions that I would love to kind of unpack. So um, for me, one of my ethical norms that I support is this idea of trusting women, right? And of course, I would expand that to trusting pregnancy-capable persons um, because trans persons are also giving birth today. Um, but this, the the fear of psychological harm cannot, it it is absolutely, in my judgment, paternalistic, right? It's this idea that a woman couldn't possibly know of the bond she's going to form, right? And what I think is 
also especially odd among feminists. I mean, there's different kinds of concerned parties and different kinds of critics. But the mainstream feminist movement, as you know, is solidly behind abortion rights, you know, as part of reproductive health care and reproductive justice. But the mainstream feminist movement is split on surrogacy, um, in part and because I found of that concerns so about harm and exploitation. Yep. But it's for me, it's like if you trust a woman to end a pregnancy for certain reasons. Why can't you trust a woman yes. or a pregnancy-capable person to endure some, a, a pregnancy for someone's behalf? And a lot of times, right. it's not pure altruism. Sometimes yes, there's yeah. compensation, or sometimes the intended parent is a relative. It's a friend. It's a daughter, right? So they are invested, right, in the in in the birth not just as, you know, they're not just the vessel, right? But they very much care about the outcome. Yeah, so for me, these, the, these issues... I, I may have yes, missed it. What's the feminist argument against surrogacy? There are I don't multiple. know what the Christian argument is either, and I know some yeah, Christians okay, are against. Yeah, okay, sure. So like, we'll, I don't understand we'll the against it. arguments. I feel like so it's a woman's body, it's her choice. Like, what's the... Okay, so the oh, feminist man. movement is not one thing, right? There right, are right, different of kinds of feminists. There are social feminists, there's liberal feminists, you know, there's, okay, there's Marxist feminists. There's a wing of feminism called radical feminists or radical feminism. And to paint a broad stroke, they are against repro te reproductive tech in general, they are against the medicalization of pregnancy. They oh. would prefer to return to an era of home births, midwifery, wow. you know, not prenatal testing, not, you know, prenatal diagnosis. I, I understand the reasoning. The reasoning is, you know, when you professionalize and medicalize, there was yeah. a shift from women-centered knowledge, gotcha. you know, where you're trusting your bodily instincts, and now you're relying on tests to tell you how you feel about your pregnancy. Gotcha, gotcha. So that's one part. But radical feminism doesn't speak for all of feminism. Right. There's right. another segment of feminists, feminists who are concerned about um, the class dimensions. So in their mind, we're talking oh. about wealthier, straight couples or gay men hiring gotcha. poor women of color or from the global south. So they have class concerns. And then there's right. another segment of feminists who are concerned about abortion rights, right? Because the model of pregnancy, sorry, the model of surrogacy is my baby, my body, their baby. But if intended parents oh. can say something about how I'm going to manage my surrogate pregnancy, they fear that it erodes the philosophical basis for abortion rights. Do, gotcha. do you get that? That I yes. do get it. It yes. sounds like everyone's having psychological harm thinking about uh, surrogacy here. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So the objections are differently grounded, yeah, you know, yeah, de yeah. depending on, you know, what segment of feminism you're representing. Yeah. So a lot of it has to do with fear of how we deal with surrogacy and how it's going to affect other things we care about potentially. Yes, exactly. Interesting. That's Interesting. that's right. That's right. The class dimensions, relationships, you know, between yeah. and among huh. differently situated persons, um the the abortion debate. You know, that's and it's really interesting that the language, you know, it's like 
Um, so one of another principle I have is medical self-determination, mm-hmm. which is to say that insofar as I am hosting uh, my friends, you know, embryos and fetus, then, you know, that I, I am legally and morally the person in charge of making decisions. Surrogacy contracts, though, sometimes are still written in a certain way where the intended parents will specify if scenario X happens, then the surrogate should selectively reduce or abort. So even though those contracts are written in those ways, most people think they're not going to be legally enforceable because what what body of law would like coerce a woman to have right. an abortion against her will just because she signed a contract right, right. with her intended parents right but th- it's those types of things that get some feminists worried sure although we currently live in a society where we would force a person to continue with a pregnancy Exactly. Their That's will. Right. right. So yeah, exactly. Just, We're talking about Texas today. Yes, exactly. Right. And That's so right. it's, it's just, um, it, it is so fascinating because I was reading the book and, you know, you talk about this strange, uh, these strange bedfellows of some feminists and Christians. Yes. And yes. I just was like, I have yes. to read this yes. again. Did I read this yes. correctly? <laughs> But, it, but, you know, that overlap also exists with sex work and with mm-hmm. pornography. There's some segment of the feminist um, <laughs> movement or groups and some yeah. segment of conservative Christians that is against right. both. That's right. a, that's and a, so you've got these, yeah. That's a different overlap of Christians and sex, wor- sex workers than I usually think of. Yeah. <laughs> it's usually a different. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the Christian... It, obviously, again, same thing as with feminism, Christianity has multiple, multiple different kind of movements within it. Yes, for the right. For the Christians who oppose surrogacy, is it kind of like what your mom was saying? Like, oh, that's not natural. That's not how God intends. Or are there other things? The there Catholic too? Church will hold oh. that view. But the uh-huh. Catholic Church is against any sort of intentional non-procreative sex. So right. even artificial insemination by husband. You cannot divide sex from reproduction. So that goes for everything. That goes for non-procreative sex acts between men and women. That goes for masturbation. That goes for same-sex activity. That goes, you know, right. So they not only separate sex, they they not only say don't separate sex from reproduction, they also say you can't separate reproduction from sex. Exactly. Both. That's right. (laughs) Right. So that's that's, that's, that's all these kids in their labs making babies with Test That's tubes. right, right. So Test all tubes. of that. Yes, all of that. And then there's the, so evangelicals tend to not, I mean, there are plenty of evangelicals, even if they say sex is reserved between husband and wife, right? right. Um, they, they practice forms of birth control, right? You know, sure, this sure. type of thing. But for many evangelicals, the concern about surrogacy is really a concern about embryos because Ninety percent oh. of all surrogacies are IVF. Right. So if they're, they're like understand eight babies. Eight exactly. There are embryos. embryos. They're they're being cryopreserved in these tanks of liquid nitrogen. And if they truly hold that life begins at conception, right. and these are insold entities, 
For them, it is really, I mean, there are literally Christian adoption agencies that have a separate wing that do what's called embryo adoption. So let's say a couple is done with IVF. Instead of destroying or, you know, preserve, you know, they, they can donate the whole embryo to another person or couple. And there are, there are evangelicals who are very concerned about that. So it's not necessarily anti-surrogacy in that sense. It's anti the waste of the, of the embryos who do not have surrogates. And it's also greater stewardship if you adopt. Because adoption is, you you know, it's a prominent New Testament theme, you know, who doesn't want to save rescue? I'm doing air quotes here. You know, the images, there's all of these homeless, orphan children in need of stable and loving homes. And that is, I mean, there there is some truth to the matter that there do exist some children in the world, right, who are without parents, right? right? But right, right, right. Um, so no, so that's, they're like, no. why are you making more if you can't? You should be adopting. Exactly, that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. And then yeah. if I can add, where so I identify as a feminist or progressive um, Christian. I I'm a member of the Presbyterian Church USA, and what I think is interesting is that if you look at these mainline denominational resolutions. They have supported the conscientious use of birth control, um, the conscientious uh, resort to abortion, you know, based on discernment, you know, la, la, la. They support um, uh, marriage equality, right, to men, to women. Mm-hmm. They also believe that uh, children are a blessing from God for those who have the vocation to parenthood. And most of them have passed resolutions supporting the conscientious use of IVF. Mm-hmm. So what I do in the book is I say, what then is your solution for two gay men? Mm-hmm. Are you prepared to say the way they are to become parents is that they must adopt and everyone else gets to use IVF, right? Mm-hmm. I think right. there's a gap, right? So... It's not that these denominations are against surrogacy. Um, they just haven't cut all, almost all of them say we need further study on. We need further study it. on. Yeah. They had they haven't concluded. They've thought about it, but they haven't rendered a judgment. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. Um, Grace, I, I, am- I feel like. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Kat. <laughs> oh no, I, I'm just I'm I'm so I'm fascinated by it. I I read your book and I just sat there, um, and I think maybe it's the timing of reading of the book, knowing all mm-hmm. that's going on with the Supreme Court and right. these cases, um, and lived experience. Um, you know, I'm I'm circling back to this idea of psychological harm. Yep. And where and how it's caused um, to women, where it may never have existed, mm-hmm. around issues of um, birth, uh, pregnancy, fertility, and going back to when I um, my my miscarriage and then the DNC, 
I was racked with guilt and had talked with mm. a number of friends in the medical field, like, help me understand, is this an abortion? Right? Because yeah. so yeah. much of my upbringing was, you can never have an abortion. Mm-hmm. Right? You mm-hmm. can't have mm-hmm. an abortion. Um, and then there was, a, that was the psychological harm, Right. Never mind the fact that I had lost a pregnancy that I had wanted to carry yeah. to term, but this this harm by the message of you're actually doing something that you're not supposed to do. You should just let this happen naturally. And mm-hmm. then later around infertility. And, you know, this was, gosh, almost 30 years ago. So things have changed, but I still remember the conversations back then around um, the taboo um at least for me as a child of Korean American or Korean immigrants, like adoption, eh, you don't, you don't want to adopt because you don't know what you're going to get. Yeah. Right. Like oh, that's okay. kind of the underlying. <laughs> yeah. Because you don't have any control over that's that. Right. Yeah. And so um, to read huh. your book as an Asian American woman, and you right. mention, um, you know, you've got a, a few, Uh, moments in there where you do talk about faith and um, Christians as well as your mom saying like this is not what God intended at any point in uh, your surrogacy experience as well as writing the book um, how did your faith inform your experience I never had a sense that I was doing something cosmically wrong. Like I just, I did not have that. I know some people feel like they're breaking the natural order. So I would definitely say that. I think because um, I, I, I identify as Presbyterian, right? And we've got this whole body of resolutions and the, my, parents, the intended parents are Methodists and they've got a whole body of resolutions supporting IVF and, you know, this type of thing. I think that played a role. I also think, you know, Kathy, I I am very sorry for your reproductive losses. There have been studies that have done, that have been done that say reproductive loss, miscarriage, infertility, it can be psychologically as devastating as receiving a cancer diagnosis. Hmm. So there is psychological harm in um, these strong desires being unfulfilled, right? I will, Correct. I will say that. And yeah. as for your Korean American immigrant church, you know, I, I do say this in the book. My Taiwanese American evangelical church was a little bit different. We had a senior female pastor, and I am certain that if I were sexually active in high school and got pregnant, I am certain everyone, everyone would have like encourage me toward an abortion. There would be no one <laughs> who would say, go ahead and have that child, right? I'm certain of wow. it, right? So I I guess I don't think I had that same abortion stigma that perhaps yeah. that you had been raised yes. in. Yeah. And how different that is for yeah. our experiences going into adulthood and, yes. um, and then how we approach even parenting later yes. on. That's right. right. And That's so right. I th- I think a lot about that and really have appreciated uh, the questions your book has provoked in my mind. Thank you. Thank um, you. And 
really, um, so listeners, please go get a copy of My Body, Their Baby, A Progressive Christian Vision for Surrogacy. Um, Grace, if people want to connect with you, where shall we point folks to? They can go to my website, which is drgracegow.com. I always get a little bit shy mentioning it, but it's that Grace Gow was taken. So I had to say doctor, but I don't really <laughs> insist upon my title when people oh, will insist on it. You um, it. <laughs> and, I, and I got on Instagram like six months ago, mostly to do my son's ballet thing. So I'm at Grace Y Gow on Instagram and you can see ballet videos and music, musical theater videos of my other son. <laughs> thank you. Gabby. We will make sure to include links to those in the show notes. Uh, okay. And again, Grace, thank you so much. Uh, I, you know, I think this conversation today demonstrates that so few of us have any real experience with surrogacy, and mm-hmm. your book is such a tremendous resource for that. And so, um, you know, whether you're someone who is dealing with infertility or someone who is in a queer relationship that is maybe looking yes. to explore surrogacy, or maybe like Grace, you're just really good at having babies, and this is yeah. something that the Lord might be calling you to consider. I'm a pro, right? Uh, you know, again, I would direct any of the, or again, maybe maybe even more basically than that, you're just curious about this conversation and want to be better informed and educated. Uh, this book is a tremendous resource. So, uh, Grace, thank you again for joining us. It's been a real honor to have you with us. And thank you again for having me as your guest. I know next week is our big end-of-the-year best-of episode, but I still would love to hear what's fascinating y'all this week before we wrap up. So, Kathy, what what uh, what are you fascinated by this week? I am fascinated by um, a show on Netflix called Blue Eye Samurai. Nice. Have either yes. of you? Yeah. Yes. I told JR to watch it a while back. Yeah. Yeah. So we great, just right? got to, yeah, I think it, I don't, what month is it? It's December. So I think we saw it last month. Um, And I don't even know who like turned it on. And then all of a sudden it was just me, Corbin and Peter just like sitting down and we're like, one more episode. No, we should (laughs) maybe half an episode. Yeah. One more. So animated. um, uh, It is. Um, it's not for kids. So parents, no. it's not for young children at all. It's about, it's, um, it's, it's bloody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's there's bloody. nudity, there's cursing, there's, there's nudity, there's a lot of blood, um, because it's, a sh- it's a show, a story about revenge and, um, uh, a warrior who is seeking revenge, um, on behalf of her mother, and herself and uh, there it's it's dark it's Mm -hmm. dark but there are moments where i i will say i chuckled out loud um i gasped and went oh i did not know animation could make me feel so like distraught about um what i was seeing the violence and some amazing um voice uh talent so Mm -hmm. Um, who do we have? So maybe Maya, like the young. Yes, uh, Maya Erskine Ers- is the is the main samurai, 
Right. And so for me, it was really interesting because I heard voices and I was like, is that the guy from the, oh, why can't, I'm so bad at these shows. Darren Barnett, who was a character, what was his show? Um, he was, never uh, Have I Ever. He's Paxton and Never, never Have yes, I Ever. Yes, right? Never Have I Ever. And I was like, what? Um, Brenda Song is in it. Randall Park. Rand- I would say I Randall Park, it. George Takei. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah. So, a lot of great talent on the show. So, Blue Eye Samurai. Did and they just, just got officially. Yep. For second season. Yeah, officially season, renewed for so. season two. Oh, did it? Oh, yep. nice. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So, that's now what, what I am fascinated by. Uh, I've been re watching The Wire, which I think this might be my third time through. Um, The Wire is a TV show that was unique when it came out. It was on HBO. And the idea was, what if we told a realistic story, like a cop show, about the war on drugs? Essentially, is how it starts. It doesn't stay there. Um, And the idea is, yeah, some cops are racist, some are crooked. There's politics going on on the one side. And then it actually went to the side of the people, the drug dealers as well. And it's like, yeah, some of these people are just trying to get out of poverty. Some of these people have been held down. Some of these people are terrible people. Uh, And there's violence and difficulty and all these things. But it's incredibly compelling television. Uh, It's just beautifully, beautifully written and acted. Uh, Again, it's not for children either, as you might guess. It's also probably rated. Yeah, it's got to be rated R. It was on the front end of kind of the HBO... uh, what, what do they call it? Prestige television. Yeah. It was one of our first prestige television shows. Um, but it's, man, it's so good. Like, you get so invested, and you know that really anyone could be on the table to be removed through death. Just violent death is a possibility for anyone in this show. But it's, yeah, it's really good stuff. Uh, um, David Simon is the creator and showrunner. Yes. And he was a journalist in the city of Baltimore for like 20 years before he wrote that show. Yeah, and maybe did and he you can work? Tell. He worked on Cops, I the think. Crime beat. he yeah. was a cop or yeah, yeah. yeah, something. No, no, no. He was a journalist, but he worked the crime beat. He worked the crime beat. Yeah, yeah. So it, yeah, it has that feeling of like, this is true. You know, like this could have really happened um, and, and maybe did, right? Yeah. Uh, what about you, JR? Have either of you seen the trailer for the new film American Fiction? I'm really excited because it's based on one of my former professor's novels. Okay, so oh. I, in preparation for this, I read Erasure by Percival Everett. You had Great. him as a professor. I, haven't I told you a hundred times to read Erasure? No. <laughs> I no. swear that I have. I, nope. I know that I have. Matt, how many times have you told me to read something and I haven't done it? I'm pretty sure I've had some of his books as our... Thing that's fascinating me at some point in the past. Well, Matt, and tell us about Erasure. <laughs> okay, Percival Everett is a uh, is a professor. He was at UC Riverside where I went, uh, and then moved to USC. And I think he might still be there. He is African American, and he writes these incredible literary fictions, but sometimes experimental fiction. Sometimes about the Black experience. Sometimes not. And he got a lot of pushback because he's he doesn't write ghetto books, right? So he wrote a book critiquing the literary world and himself. It's a satire 
called Erasure about a professor who writes these kind of like high level literary things uh, and is constantly flummoxed because around him are people who definitely did not grow up in the ghetto who are writing books that like have Ebonics in it and people who are on drugs. Yeah. The specific book that is a best runaway bestseller (laughs) is called Wheeze Lives in Da Ghetto. Right. By a woman from Akron, Ohio, who visited a cousin in Harlem once. Which, oh my gosh. Ew. I have to tell you guys off the air some stuff from when I went to school. Um, yeah, so he decides to experiment and discovers not only is it very easy under an assumed name to write this way, but it's very easy to become popular writing that way. Uh, it's a great, great book, and I cannot wait to see the movie. But did you see the movie, Jer? I did. I got to see an advanced screening of it that featured yes. a Q&A with the director and one of the stars. Nice. And the director has been a writer for in Hollywood for a while. He wrote for The Good Place and several other TV shows that, like, once you see what he's written for, you're like, okay, yeah, I get it. Uh, he adapted, um. obviously, this book, Jeffrey Wright Stars. And it's... It is hilarious and also, like, very painful to watch. (laughs) (laughs) And I think what staggers me is that Erasure came out in 2001. And uh, for those keeping count (laughs) at home, it is now 2023. So we are uh, more than two decades later, and yet uh, nothing had to be updated from this novel for it to (laughs) Oh dear. Yeah. That's so disappointing. it's it's really about Yeah, it's really about how dominant culture, specifically white culture, uh allows black success. Mhm. Uh and the ways that I mean I don't I don't I will say as a white person watching it, it felt to me as though the black characters in the film we're saying the only way for me to receive acclaim and attention is for me to inhabit these particular stereotypes. You know, mm-hmm. like like whiteness mm. doesn't make room yeah. for the full range yeah. of black experience. Kathy's right? acting like she knows what you're talking about. Um, yeah. yeah. So I mean, I'm. It was it was a it was an amazing movie. It's it's. I think I I put it in my top five for the year. Uh, I can't wait to talk about it more. Uh, Kathy genuinely can't wait for your take on it. It may just, it may be like, I don't know if you remember when get out was submitted to the golden globes as a comedy instead of a drama yes. and yes. people were yes. raging. And then Jordan Peele said they were like, Jordan Peele, is it a documentary or, or is it a, uh, sorry, is it a comedy or a drama? And he said, it's a documentary. Like, I'm worried that may be how you feel about it. You may be like, I did not laugh. I just wept the whole way through. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I, you know, I, I do a lot of weeping these days, so it might be fine. But a friend of mine just recommended the movie. She was like, "If you can get an advance, like if you can go see okay. it early, go see it early." So I will say that the theater was pretty full, and I think it was at least half African American uh, audience, and they had some strong opinions about the things that were happening in the movie and uh it seemed it seemed as though generally they appreciated the film you know like that it it felt like something that they could laugh at but also like it was a little cathartic too so anyway american fiction amazing writer yeah it opens in just a couple of weeks uh i think if you listen to the show you'd really like the film so all right friends we need your help 
next week we are wrapping up our season. Uh, we're doing best movies, best books, best kind of other stuff, TV, whatever. And we would love to hear some of your nominations for that. So you can go to our socials and share there. Uh, you, you hopefully by now have seen where we've been sharing some of the, the graphics asking for your help there. Uh, we'd love to shout you out as we are listing and counting down our favorites. Uh, but yeah, we'll be back next week for the end of the season. Until then, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. And make sure you visit Grace's website, Dr. Grace's website and her socials and let her know you enjoyed uh, having her as a guest on the show. See you next week.